you remember writing in your diary, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four? Yes. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? Four. And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Those are slogans written by George Orwell in his famous novel, 1984. For the first time on Secret Police, we will step out of the realm of reality and into the world of fiction. We will descend into a dystopia, some future version of London, or at least what's left of it. The year is 1984. Maybe. Nobody quite knows the year. We arrive at Airstrip 1, formerly England, a region inside the superstate of Oceania. Ruled by a totalitarian regime administered by INSOC, or just the party. The party's ever present, godlike, mustachioed leader goes by Big Brother. We don't know his real name or his background. We don't even really know if he is real or an idol conjured by the party, since he never appears as a character in the book. Big Brother and the party's rule are enforced by a ruthless and shadowy institution called the Thought Police. They are, ostensibly, the party's secret police, and they control and monitor every citizen's behavior and thoughts. Public spaces and homes are continuously monitored by telescreens. Language is constantly tweaked and cut to warp reality. And people are disappeared for committing thought crime. It might be a story, but there are some aspects of the thought police that have materialized into our world in recent years government surveillance being front and center. Let's get to know this world and regime and meet the man who created this world, George Orwell. My holiday gift to you guys is this bonus episode. Today we are going to explore the life of George Orwell and the story of 1984. And we are particularly interested in the Thought Police. The most pervasive and certainly one of the most powerful fictionalized secret police in my sphere or awareness of literature. Who was George Orwell? What inspired him to write 1984? Who and what are the thought police? How can we as citizens recognize when the thought police are interfering with us? You are listening to the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. My name is Jack, and I spend hours researching and engaging with my morbid curiosity of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We look at how secret police enforce tyranny and strike fear in their people. Nothing to recap here like we usually do, so we'll just jump right into Orwell's background. Now, if you haven't read the book or seen any of the movies, there will be spoilers. During my senior year of high school, we we read this book. Uh, not going to lie, I wasn't the biggest reader in high school, but I did actually read 1984 about two years ago and thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's pretty terrifying. I doubt all U.S. high school uh, U.S. high schoolers read 1984, but I really have 
no idea if that's true or not. So what I want to know is, for my U.S. agents, did you read this book in school? What grade um, for agents outside the United States, what is your relationship with this book? Is it required reading in your school? Let me know. Um, now, without further delay, let's meet one of the most influential authors in Western literature. Eric Arthur Blair was born in Montahari in the Bengal region of India on June 25th, 1903. Now, Eric won the birth lottery because his parents were wealthy and had ties to British aristocracy. However, over time, the family's wealth was extinguished and Eric's parents were forced to make adjustments, as one does when facing budget constraints. But his parents continued to act as if they were rich, as they, you know, as they were back in the day. His father, Richard um, Walmsley Blair, in particular, earned a modest living as an agent of the British Civil Service in India. Later in life, George Orwell described his upbringing as, quote, lower upper middle class. Around 1905, Eric's mother, Ida uh, Madel Blair, took him back to England for school. Specifically, they relocated to a house in Oxfordshire. Starting in September 1911, Eric attended St. Cyprian Boarding School in East Sussex. St. Cyprian was the kind of school wealthy and well-connected families sent their children to. Young Eric got in because of a family connection who provided a scholarship for him to attend. Without that scholarship, Eric would not have attended. The Blairs had fallen so far financially that it didn't uh, it didn't take long for Eric to recognize he was one of the poorest kids at school. The other students mocked him for it, and Eric hated the school. A book titled Such Such Were the Joys, published after his death, um, tells of his time at St. Cyprian. English boarding school back in the day, man, um, not a pleasant experience for many, but it was totally normal in England. In fact, my, my own grandmother, born in Witten under Edge in England, was sent away from her parents at seven years old to live with some rich family whose little girl had a, a governess, which is like a teacher, I guess. So, so my grandmother was supposed to be this little girl's um, companion. Uh, I really don't know any more of the details than that, but I, I do know it was traumatic for her. Now, despite the bullying and um, stuffy atmosphere of St. Cyprian, Eric was successful in school, even earning himself a scholarship to Eton, the school which both Prince William and Prince Harry uh, for a time attended. I'm not English, as you can tell from my accent, but my understanding is that Eton is posh, expensive for wealthy people. Whatever phrase you want to use to describe that it is not for peasants like me. Eric started at Eton in 1917, and that made his parents happy. Uh, going to such an uh, establishment, that is, that's what made his parents happy. But at Eton, Eric started to, uh, Eric started getting bitter or a bitter taste in his mouth for authority. Hey, maybe he would have liked secret police. Just maybe. What Eric did next made his parents less happy. Imagine you attended Harvard, Yale, Stanford, or some other big boy heavy hitter academic institution like that. And after you graduated, rather than take uh, that job your father wants you to take, um, you know, or work your connections in more illustrious fields, you intentionally get a job as a road worker laying new asphalt at 2 a.m. on I-90 in central Ohio. How mad would that have made your dad? 
Okay, in all seriousness, nothing wrong with being a road worker. I've had some jobs where that's been more appealing, plus you probably make bank. I welcome agents of all walks of life here, whether you went to Harvard or state school like myself. Community college, no college, this is a place for curious history people. Plus, no investment uh, banker is uh, really going to work without a functioning road. So anyway... Eric freaked out his parents by extending both middle fingers at attending university and peaced out to Burma, modern-day Myanmar. What was Eric doing there? Well, he was an imperial police officer in a remote part of Burma as part of an occupying force because, you know, colonialism. He hated it. But the experience helped transform Eric towards becoming the writer we know him as today, you know, as Orwell. And honestly, he probably learned more there um, than his uh, Eaton peers who went to college. I remember when I was in second grade, my elementary school gave my mom hell for wanting to pull me out for a month to go to China. I learned more in a month of travel than I would have with an additional month of my ass glued to a plastic desk chair learning why uh, an X sometimes makes a Z sound or some bullshit like that. One of the sources I used for this episode is the BBC documentary about Orwell, or a BBC documentary um, about Orwell. Um, I'll have linked in the episode description. The doc itself is played by actors, but Orwell's words are his own. The doc is definitely worth uh, a watch, but uh, it is depressing. So while in Burma, Eric describes the experience of having to take part in the execution of a prisoner by hanging. He said, quote, this man was not dying. He was alive, just as we were alive. He and we were a party of men walking together, seeing, hearing, feeling, understanding the same world. And in two minutes, one of us would be gone, end quote. Eric became more disillusioned by his work in Burma, feeling uncomfortable as an oppressor of the Burmese people mixed with his affinity for uh, distrusting authority. In July 1927, Eric had uh, enough and resigned from the colonial police. So Eric extended both middle fingers at the colonial police and peaced out. But did he go to university? No. Instead, he made his parents mad again. Or, in this case, he made them uncomfortable. Eric decided to dress like a homeless guy and live among the poorest working class people in London. He didn't just do this once. He did this on and off for four years. This guy had some serious balls, and it's not exactly clear why Eric decided to do this. At one point, he traveled to Paris to do the same thing while working on and off with um, service staff in hotels and restaurants, he ex and he experienced serious poverty. But he wasn't really poor. He could retreat from this fantasy of destitution anytime he wanted, and, and he did. The people he hung out with did not have uh, that luxury of taking a break from their shitty circumstances. Where did Eric retreat to when he needed a break? To mom and dad's house, of course. Listen, I wouldn't have the balls to live with uh, people in a South Minneapolis encampment. I mean, I barely have the balls to bike through what to bike through an encampment since unfortunately crime, drugs, and disease are rampant in these tent cities. 
not trying to downplay what Orwell did because, well, he did more than I think most of us would be willing to do. But he had a massive advantage of being able to leave. Eric's stints among Paris and London's poor working class inspired him to start writing. But he didn't crank out a masterpiece immediately. Eric worked hard on honing a writing style that invoked vivid imagery with as few words as possible. So, evocative, but digestible. Which is really tough to do. Like, every fall I have some misplaced inspiration to write horror short stories, but honestly, guys, they're awful, and creative writing is not my thing. I'll stick with scripts. Thank you very much. Keep the change. Eric published Down and Out in Paris and London in January 1933. I've never read this book, but my understanding is this uh, this uh, book was somewhat um, fictionalized journalism about his time among the working class, kind of like Upton St. Clair's The Jungle. Fiction, but based on real experience. For some reason, Down and Out in Paris and London might have been controversial controversial, if I could talk. So it was decided that Eric would publish the book under a pseudonym. Can you, can you guess what that pseudonym was? George Orwell. The book did not kill it with sales, but it did earn him some awards. I'll refer to him as Orwell from here on out too. Um, so check this out. On uh, June 9th, 1936, Orwell married his girlfriend, Eileen Maud O'Shaughnessy. But uh, trouble was a Bruin in Spain. Military units loyal to Francisco Franco staged a coup in different areas across Spain in response to left-wing attempts in other regions to secede. Spain spiraled into a complex civil war between right and left nationalists supported by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, respectively. See Russian Secret Police Part 4 on the NKVD for a bit more detail than this. Many young men in Britain felt compelled to join the fighting in Spain, including George Orwell, whose balls at this point could be seen from outer space. He and his balls joined the fighting forces on December 23rd, 1936. I wonder how his, uh, his uh, wife felt about that so close to Christmas. Orwell traveled to Barcelona to join a non-aligned Marxist group called Partido Obrero de Unificación Marxista, or a poem, because Orwell uh, professed to be a socialist, so he fought alongside the more left-leaning communist groups, but we'll, we'll see his views change uh, through this episode. He completed some training and went off to fight. Kinda. Orwell, being a natural reporter wrote about his experience on the front. However, where he was stationed wasn't exactly where the action was. Eventually, he was sent back to Barcelona, where he helped defend Poem headquarters from, uh, from the communists as the left in this particular conflict devoured itself, basically. Next, the communists labeled Poem as a fascist group and hunted down people who were not aligned with the communists, even those on the left, which makes, you know, perfect sense. Uh, so Orwell left Barcelona and returned to the front. He was damn near killed when a sniper shot Orwell through the neck. He was lucky that the bullet passed straight through and didn't sever any major blood vessels. He was immediately pulled from the front and returned again to Barcelona, but the communists were hunting down members of Poem. Orwell and his wife, Eileen, managed to get the hell out of Dodge and escape to France before the communists either 
executed or disappeared them. The couple eventually traveled back to Britain, and his experience in Spain fundamentally changed Orwell, as I imagine fighting in a war would change most people. Orwell held onto being a, a socialist, so he held onto those ideas, but the communists really did leave a bad taste in his mouth, having seen his, um, his poem Comrades Rounded Up and Killed. Overall, Orwell was vehemently opposed to totalitarianism in any form, capitalism morphing into totalitarianism, communism transforming into totalitarianism, you get it. Any avenue on which totalitarianism would be the end result he was against. On April 1st, 1939, Franco's fascist government was victorious in the Spanish Civil War. Only a couple months later, in September, two more totalitarian governments invaded Poland. He tried to join the military to fight the Germans, but was rejected because of poor health due to tuberculosis, a bacterial infection of the lungs. Not to mention, he took a bullet to his uh, head holder. Instead, he joined the British Home Guard, which was more or less a civilian militia of people otherwise ineligible to actually fight in Europe. On a personal note, my great-grandfather Francis Frith, a veteran of the trenches in the First World War, was part of the Home Guard. In 1941, Orwell joined the BBC radio to uh, produce propaganda for the war. Let me speed through some of um, of some more of this so we can get to 1984, the book, not the, not the year. Orwell left the BBC in 1943. He and Eileen adopted their son Richard in 1944. Orwell wrote Animal Farm, a story about farm animals ousting their owners and taking over the farm only for the pigs to take the place of the human owners. Kind of sounds like uh, middle school anytime we had a substitute teacher, am I right? Months before Animal Farm was published, Eileen died of cancer, which shook Orwell and put him in a bad place emotionally. Orwell and Richard moved to a house on Jura Island in Scotland. It was a two-day trip to London, about 25 miles from the nearest town and eight miles from the nearest phone. Honestly, sounds pretty nice right about now. Hidden away in this house, Orwell cracked on with writing 1984. His health deteriorated as he wrote, but he clung on to life long enough to see 1984 published on June the 8th, 1949. The book sparked a wide range of interpretations of its true meaning, and that's what's pretty uh, bloody brilliant about 1984, is its accessibility. Orwell paints a picture of totalitarianism that can be consumed by just about anybody on the political spectrum. 1984 doesn't tell you what to think, but immerses you into the world. I wish we could get more media like that today. On January 21st, 1950, Eric Arthur Blair, or George Orwell, died at the age of 46. Only a few months before, he'd married Sonia, Richard's babysitter. She would go on to have many of Orwell's books um, published uh, posthumously. Now let's look at the story of 1984. Again, spoilers ahead. 1984 paints the grim reality of Winston Smith, a man living in the post-apocalyptic world of what's left of London, presumably after a nuclear war that occurred some time ago in the old world. Great Britain was renamed to Airstrip 1, and as part of a superstate called Oceana, 
that is in a perpetual state of war with Eurasia and East Asia. But the government decides which state they've always been at war with on a whim. It's not entirely clear if this is even true since rockets periodically pummel the city's remains. And it could very well be the government's own doing. Winston works in the bowels of the Ministry of Truth, updating party propaganda. Old documents not consistent with the party's current whims get tossed into a furnace as to destroy the evidence of any alternative past. Winston is a deviant in this world who longs for a more free and private existence. He keeps a diary where he writes his true thoughts and questions about his reality. He writes down with Big Brother. This is the kind of stuff that would get him killed or sent to a labor camp if caught. Every workday, Winston takes part in the two minutes of hate where everybody screams frantically at images of the party's enemies like the notorious underground leader Emmanuel Goldstein. One day, a young woman named Julia stumbles in front of Winston and discreetly passes him a note that reads, I love you. Winston feels alive, thrilled at the prospect of an affair since he is married, but not to a woman of his choice that he loves, but rather a wife that he was assigned. Winston discovers that Julia, like him, hates the party and Big Brother. Always nice when you meet somebody uh, with mutual interests, isn't it? Winston and Julia continue to meet up and have a dystopian adult relations in the woods and in a hidden flat he rents from a shopkeeper named Mr. Charrington. Winston is approached by a leader or a lead party member named O'Brien who provides Winston with his home address. Winston assumes O'Brien may be part of an underground resistance movement called the Brotherhood. O'Brien invites both Winston and Julia to his lavish apartment. He even has the ability to turn off the telescreen completely, which is a privilege not uh, anybody but the inner party members have. O'Brien initiates the couple into the Brotherhood and provides them with a book that describes the real truth about the past, the origins of Oceania and totalitarianism. Later that night, a telescreen makes itself known to Winston and Julia, and the Thought Police break into the flat, Freeze! arresting them both. It turns out that both Mr. Charrington, the shopkeeper, and O'Brien are agents of the Thought Police. Winston is taken to the Ministry of Love, where the Thought Police will deal with his deviant mind. We'll return to Winston in a moment, but let's look at this totalitarian regime. Towering over the dilapidated remains of London are massive pyramidal complexes that house the four main party ministries. The Ministry of Truth, they create propaganda. The Ministry of Love, they squash opposition. The Ministry of Peace, they wage war. And the Ministry of Plenty, they distribute rations and manage economics. This totalitarian state is run by a single party called English Socialism or INGSOC. The society is organized into the small minority of the powerful inner party, a slightly larger outer party, and the largely uneducated and easily manipulated masses, or the proles, as they are called. The party is run by an all-powerful, all-seeing 
uh, presumed head of state called Big Brother. We don't know his real name or if he really exists or not. All we know is his mustachioed face is beamed everywhere in London. And the masses worship him like a god. Big Brother is watching you. Always. Let's venture back to the Ministry of Love, or mini-love, in Newspeak. The regime is enforced by the ruthless Thought Police, or ThinkPol. Even if you've never heard of any secret police agencies beyond the Gestapo or the KGB, it is likely the Thought Police have crossed your awareness in other contexts beyond the 1984 novel. Thoughtpole and Big Brother both have numerous references in pop culture and the news media, especially in the summer of 2013 when it was uncovered that the United States National Security Agency has programs that kick the Fourth Amendment in the nuts at best. The history of Thinkpole is intimately linked with the history of Ingsoc and the regime itself. But what of their methods? Thinkpole deploys the utmost pervasive and invasive surveillance technology. The telescreens, a television, microphone, and camera wrapped into one privacy-killing machine. Their volume can be turned down, but never off, except for the inner party members. They constantly blast Ingsoc propaganda about the war with Eurasia or East Asia. They listen to your private words and watch your private moments. They can be hidden behind paintings. Thinkpole hunts down thought crimes, which are any thoughts or actions that deviate from the dictates of the party. They maintain squads of armed men to ambush and arrest thought criminals like Winston Smith. It is not clear what a thought police officer's uniform consists of. The movies based on the book show thought police dressed like riot police in all black. Perhaps they wear the same blue overalls that the rest of the outer party members wear. One among the proles may be the thought police dress to blend in. Some authors of 1984 fan fiction describe the thought police as dressed in all black uniforms. We don't know anything about individual agents beyond Mr. Charrington and O'Brien. We don't know their ranking system, their thoughts on Big Brother, or their degree of freedom within the regime. Their physical presence in the book is minimal compared to the omnipresent specter of the Thought Police. That's what makes them so mysterious. The lack of detail adds intrigue. Thinkpole employs agent provocateurs like O'Brien to lure unsuspecting would-be rebels into the regime's clutches. Then there is re-education via psychological and physical torture. In Room 101, rumored to be a real place where George Orwell was forced to attend lengthy meetings during his stint at the BBC, is a room inside the Ministry of Love where prisoners are subjected to torture via their own personal phobias. What would be yours? Drowning? Large spiders? Small spaces? Filth and sickness? Would you point a finger at your own spouse to make it stop? Remember that Winston was brought to the Ministry of Love after his arrest. He suffered torture by O'Brien, not to make Winston spill information, but rather to instill full belief in the party and Big Brother. When these methods only caused Winston severe physical pain, O'Brien upped the ante by hauling Winston to room 101. His face was strapped to a cage partitioned by a small hatch. On the other side of the hatch, 
were two large starving rats. They threatened to let the rats tear apart and eat his face unless Winston absolutely believes with every being and mortal fiber that two plus two equals five. The point of this is that the regime wants absolute and total power over the minds of their subjects. It's something right out of a Saw movie. Winston leaves the Ministry of Love a broken man, never even wanting to think a single rebellious thought again. He and Julia stop seeing each other. Winston spends his days in a dingy cafe sucking down stale victory gin. No longer does he think down with Big Brother. Orwell concludes 1984 with the quote, He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. End quote. 1984 has immense cultural significance and practical consideration for those in power who genuinely want to avoid totalitarianism. Former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy is said to have been frightened by the book, and it could have contributed to his voting record of preventing the federal government from obtaining too much power. 1984 is often invoked by a variety of political pundits as a warning for either negligible or legitimate reason. Just do a Google search for the term thought police and click news, and then you'll see what I mean. Media outlets asserting political correctness and Twitter banning are akin to a thought police. NSA, tech companies, and other powerful entities are labeled as Big Brother. Concerns of eroding rights to privacy and dwindling rights to mindful and bodily autonomy can be read as signs of society tiptoeing towards an Orwellian reality. George Orwell would probably be concerned with our current world's fascination and flirtation with authoritarianism. What Orwell probably didn't see us doing is willingly providing our private information to companies. Websites often invite users to make profiles even if you're making a random one-off purchase. Ordering food doesn't come without giving up a degree of privacy. Most ridiculous in my mind are small appliances like toasters packaged with optional warranties. You'll scan the QR code and the service can be or can only be activated by providing your data like your home address for a warranty on a toaster that costs less than $100. He couldn't have imagined us using our own little personal telescreens for entertainment and willingly providing our faces and fingerprints to the true masters of these devices. What's portrayed in 1984 is repression through use of fear by a totalitarian government. What has worked even better in the real world is collecting information through a medium that's fun, entertaining, social, convenient, and nice. Or at least appears nice. That approach has made giving up privacy quite appealing. Certainly more appealing than giving up our privacy via deadly force. I'm sure we can all think of at least one example of something that gives us an eerie feeling of Big Brother and the Thought Police. Honestly, there's really nothing more profound I could say about this book that probably hasn't already been said. 1984 is probably one of the most analyzed books ever, and it can get people heated because their interpretation highlights the faults of their particular enemies. And the prospect of a totalitarian government as repressive as the one depicted in 1984 is legitimately terrifying. So let's hope. Actually, 
let's let's not hope. Let's fight, vote, and use our critical thinking skills to make sure that kind of parasitic regime never takes hold. Again, the beauty of 1984 is that it can be interpreted in many ways and doesn't set out to tell you what to think, but rather shows you why totalitarianism is a bad thing for everyone, except for the few at the top who are in charge. And even they probably fear for themselves, because if they don't hold power, well, they're going to be strung up in the street. Let's recap. Eric Arthur Blair lived an eventful 46 years of life having been an imperial police officer, writer, explorer of different socioeconomic classes, and collector of experiences. He was nearly killed during the Spanish Civil War and became disillusioned with the communists after his time in Spain. He became George Orwell with the publishing of Down and Out in Paris and London. Orwell, I think, is correct in his conclusions to resist violent totalitarianism no matter what avenue it, it manifests itself from, whether that be communism, capitalism, or any other kind of ism. 1984 is a story about a man named Winston Smith who lives under the regime of Big Brother and Ingsoc. He is not successful in obtaining full rebellion or freedom from tyranny. Rather, he is caught and the government tortures Winston into their own version of freedom, a freedom to love Big Brother and believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. The Thought Police, or ThinkPol, are a secret police force of Ingsoc that enforced Big Brother's rule in the book. They employ telescreens everywhere throughout the ruins of London to churn out propaganda, monitor and listen each citizen in public and in their homes. ThinkPol searches for and destroys thought criminals in the Ministry of Love through torture. 1984 is culturally significant and influential. Some people worry about a big brother and thought police regime manifesting themselves into our respective nations, leading to a reality similar to the world of 1984. So there you have it, Orwell's life and the world he created in 1984 short episode today. I felt like while writing this episode that I wouldn't have enough material on the Thought Police themselves as there aren't a ton of details about them as an, uh, as an agency in the book, but as I sort of alluded to earlier, many amateur writers produce their own ideas about the Thought Police, which is obviously what they had to do for the, for the movies. I think 1984 would make a great miniseries if they told it through the perspective of somebody else living on Airstrip 1. Heck, a prequel uh, Big Brother origin story might be cool if he is or uh, was, in fact, a real person. There are so many avenues uh, people can take this story, just as demonstrated by the many interpretations that there are with this book. I think, or, or I kind of um, kind of doubt it, but hopefully if a new 1984 movie were made today, that it would be as open-ended as the book. But I, but I honestly, unfortunately, these days audiences are told what to think, which I think is, I think is bad. But anyway, great book, terrifying concepts. Glad I could get this uh, episode out before the new year. And I hope you liked it despite the lack of tiny details about ThinkPole. Again, to me, what's scariest about ThinkPole is their minimal physical presence, and instead they're like ghosts in the 1984 society. The most obvious evidence of their existence is the telescreens. 
I wondered while making this episode if, say, in the Soviet Union, the people knew about the secret police in name and function. I personally would assume... I would assume so, since Russian revolutionaries were aware of, um, say, the Okhrana. But I did ponder this question of um, societal awareness of ThinkPol, because I would wonder if, say, here in the States, if we would even be aware of such force within the government being given the green light to trample on our autonomy. So what I would like to do before wrapping this episode up is to just peel back the curtain and invite you backstage here at Secret Police and show you what's kind of happened this year and where I think things will go in 2023. I started the show a year ago while reading The Dictator's Handbook, and I started it because I couldn't find a lot of podcast content on Secret Police institutions. There the sphere is sort of oversaturated with stuff about the Gestapo and the KGB, and I really wanted to do deep dives on some of the lesser-known secret police organizations. And I was shocked to find that there wasn't, a, at the time, a show that was dedicated to cataloging all of them and really doing a detailed look at each one. So the first episode, or the trailer rather, came out April 1st of 2022. But between that time, so I said I started in a year, started kind of like constructing what the show would be like and gathering theme music and stuff like that last December. And that went to the wayside for a while because I am a grad student and I have a family. So there's just like a lot of, there's always others, there's always something going on and distracting and pulling my attention away. But what really motivated me to get this show together was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Before that happened, I knew I was going to start with Russian secret police. I, I'm being honest when I can say that, that current external events did not influence my decision to start with Russian secret police. It's just because it was a logical place to start because they do have a long history of secret police institutions inside that, inside the various iterations of that country, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and the Russian Federation. So the first episode came out April 1st, or the trailer, like I said, and that was shortly followed by the first Russia episode on the Opportuniki. And we're going to wrap up that series next year with, I, th I think, at least two more episodes on the KGB and then the F FSB. After that, we're sort of off to the races and I'm excited to branch out and look at the secret police at other nations and even secret police that existed in centuries past. On a practical note, I do not anticipate next year or ever running ads on the show. I, I personally dislike uh, ads inside podcasts. I certainly listen to a lot of podcasts that have ads in them, but my personal preference would be to keep them out of the show. I have thought more about a Patreon and merch. However, I am not consistent enough with releasing these episodes as I would like to be where I feel like I can justify having a Patreon because I just don't feel I wouldn't feel good about taking money month after month, month after month and not delivering. So I'm not going to do that. As far as merch goes, you know, that seems like more of a, of a consensual transaction, if you will, where you pay for something and you get a product. It's pretty straightforward, but 
I don't necessarily anticipate that happening next year either. But this has certainly been a humbling experience. While I am recording this now, I am very close to approaching 3,100 downloads total for the show, which is... I could not have imagined that when I started off. I thought maybe I was going to get like at most 200 downloads, but it turns out that there is quite an interest in this topic. I did know that there is a large community of both his, uh, history uh, or a large community of consumers and producers of history podcasts. And I just never anticipated that my show would have as much interest as it appears to have garnered so those of you who have listened i mean even if you've just listened to one episode thank you for giving me that time those of you who are hooked and have been following for a while especially thank you for um for being interested in the show and and sticking with it and it's just a very humbling experience when you find something niche and you claim you stake your acclaim and it turns out to be successful. It's been it's been pretty pretty wild ride for me to witness this. So thank you. I can't do it without you guys. So 2022 has been a good year for the show. I'm really looking forward to what happens next year in 2023. Certainly we're going to finish our, we're going to finish up with our time in Russia and we are just going to go to town on the rest of the secret police organizations out there. If you did enjoy this episode, please give the show a rating, write a review if you're feeling extra generous and subscribe on your preferred podcast app. I hope you guys had or will have a wonderful holiday with the people or things that you enjoy the most. Safe travels, and we'll pick back up next year. Happy New Year, and let's ring in 2023 with positivity. Agents dismissed. <laughs>